Part two. Now it is. <laughs> All right, good. Uh, we're gonna do a little sound so we can sync the audio. <coughs> Three, two, one. Perfect. And we're live. All Are right. we? Good evening. Uh, I am Michael Lowe here with Civil Discourses, filling in for uh, Megan. Uh, we have a great show today. We have Professor Forrest Neighbors to my right and Assemblyman. Uh, Forrest Dunbar to my left. We got the Battle of the Forces. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll just start out with quick bios, guys. We'll uh, start with you, probably you, uh, Forrest Dunbar. Okay. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, Spell F D. Yeah. <laughs> I uh, okay. Um, I grew up in uh, in rural Alaska in a town called Eagle on the Yukon, and then Cordova on Prince William Sound. I uh, went back east for school, went to American University, and then got an MPP and a JD over there. Um, served in the Peace Corps, and uh, then came back here. And I work as an attorney uh, for Chugach Native Corporation now. Um, also serve as you do in the Army Guard, where I'm a judge advocate. And then finally, I'm on I'm on the Anchorage Assembly. Nice. My my parents are Miriam and Roger Dunbar. Nice. <laughs> Give a good shout out to the parents. I like yeah. It. <laughs> All right. How about you, Doctor Neighbors? Spoke with you the other day, but why don't you tell people? Who you I don't know if I can measure up to that. <laughs> Very brief, power but powerful uh, resume. Um, well, I grew up in New Jersey, uh, in the New York City area, and uh, <clears throat> went out to Claremont McKenna College. And uh, then I took a year off, and I was a shepherd in New Zealand. Nice. And then I came back and uh, uh, played football for Claremont. <clears throat> and then I decided that uh, I wanted to go to the intellectual Disneyland of America, so I transferred to the University of Chicago. Where fun goes to die. Exactly. Fun does go to die there, and actually the social center of the University of Chicago is, guess, the uh, library. Uh, oh, oh, oh. <laughs> the library. I was like the Milton Friedman yeah, Center. It's probably the only college or university in America. So anyway, I, I went into business after that. I was in high tech. I ended up in the Silicon Forest in Oregon. Um, I, got, I, I had been bitten by the book bug at an early age, so I decided to leave right when my business career was taking off and uh, go back to... Uh, graduate school, get a doctorate, become a professor, which landed me here. I went to, I got my PhD at the University of Oregon and uh, been here since 2011. Love it here and uh, wish I could stay for the rest of my career. Maybe you can. <laughs> I, I don't know, given it's what's going on. But very much dependent, yeah, very much dependent on what happens with the university budget, I would assume. Well, yeah. Yeah. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about All that. Right. The reason I wanted to get both of you guys here because I, I think that you guys are very. Uh, good perspectives and very different perspectives on a lot of things that's happening in Alaska and in the national uh, political scene right now. And the first one we'll uh, talk about is the BP uh, Hill Court deal in Alaska and how um, us being a kind of a dependent on oil is, mm -hmm. makes us vulnerable towards its downturn. Uh, what can we do to diversify uh, Alaska's economy, if anything? And uh, what do you make of the BP Hill Court deal in Alaska's economic future? I want to hear from him first. Well, I'll start by saying I don't have any particular inside knowledge on the deal between Hill Corp and BP. In, in one way, it's sort of encouraging that another company would be willing to buy these assets for 
several billion dollars, right? And Hillcore thinks they can come in here and extract more money from these legacy fields. Uh, they can do a better job than BP does. Um, and their business model is quite a bit different. Um, I think it's also worrisome, obviously, for Alaska because it's going to mean a number of layoffs. Um, and BP has been a really important partner for a lot of people in our community. They've done a lot of charitable work. And the question is whether or not Hillcore is going to continue with that. But that's kind of the micro level. I'd say on the macro level, what you said is absolutely true, which is we've long recognized that our economy is too dependent on oil and on certain extractive industries in general. And I don't think this is actually a controversial statement. I mean, I don't know. You said we're going to have disagreements. I'm not sure if we will. Maybe a little bit further down. The, the, question, so far, of, so yeah, the question of diversifying Alaska's economy has been sort of the you know, whatever you call it, the silver bullet, golden, whatever it is. It's been the focus for a lot of Alaskans for 40 years, you know, but no one has really hit on one thing. And I think what people have realized, policymakers have realized, is that there isn't one thing. There's no one single thing that can replace the oil industry um, in terms of revenue for the state or even jobs for the state's residences, uh, re uh, residents. Um, so I think it's going to be a combination of things. I think it's going to be tech. I think it's going to be services. I think it's going to be tourism. I think it's going to be um, continued uh, sustainable fisheries, that kind of thing. But the other question we need to answer, it's not just about the jobs. It's also about revenue for the state, right? Because the state itself provides a lot of middle-class jobs in Alaska. And so far, our tax system is structured, so only the oil industry has really been paying a significant portion of the taxes. And that is going to have to change. Uh, maybe not this year, but at some point in the not-too-distant future, we're going to have to diversify our revenue sources if we want to maintain a middle class and have a diversified economy. Okay. Mm. Yeah, well, uh, <clears throat> I don't really have any unique insights on the Hillcourt deal. Uh, but it does, uh, if, if the press, I'm remembering the press accounts correctly, most of their, um, how much of their employee force is in Alaska nationally? It's, I think it's a majority, isn't it, or no? Well, maybe nationally. So my understanding with Hillcore is unlike BP that has a bunch of plays going at once, yeah. Hillcore kind of focuses on one. I think the last one was in Papua New Guinea. And they're based oh, okay. out of Texas. Right. But it might yeah, be the case yeah. that I think Alaska is their next big play. Right. And it will be sort of the primary focus of their company. Yeah. I mean, when I, when I read about it, my hope was, well, maybe the headquarters or at least the virtual headquarters of the company is going to move to Alaska, which would be good for the state. Better than having uh, Houston or London, yeah. you know, sucking money out of the state like they've been doing for a while. So, I mean, almost everything that you said, I, I, w I would agree with. That um, I mean, in a way, I, I mean, I don't, I don't like to demonize oil companies. There are neighbors, the people who work for them, are friends, uh, neighbors, good citizens. The companies have contributed a lot to the state. Nevertheless, you know, I do think, in a way, um, you know, if you think about this passionately, I mean, oil, in, in a way, has been a curse of the state. Um, it is, it, it has been a curse, and and in in this sense, and. I don't mean generally, but in the sense that, you know, because it is biased re, uh, reinvestment of finance and human capital capital towards it, it has meant that finance capital and human um, human assets have not been invested in other uh, new sectors of the economy that could have taken root and grown here. But this is what oil does all over the world. Right. See, when oil, because it's such a rich resource. Uh, you see, when it's discovered in, in nations, they become a single resource economy, practically, and it dominates everything else. 
And in a way, when you look at their economies, it's, it kind of curses them in that sense yeah. as well. You can't, it's hard to have a diversified economy when you've got oil in your meds. So the question is, how do you do that? Um, when I came here, I thought one of the ways to do that, it can't, I don't know if it can come from government. It's got leadership has to come from the private sector and leadership from, um, from finance capital. They have to be willing to take those risks and invest in, in new businesses. And um, so anyway, I mean. I, I think that's true. I, I think there are some examples of other, because not just oil, right? O- oil is the most prominent example, but whenever there's sort of one extractive resource that is by far the most profitable, it tends to do this, right? The resource curse, a bunch of different countries. But I do think there are models of countries that have done it better than we have. So Norway and Australia would probably be the two I would point to. And Mm -hmm. neither of them is perfect. But they have a more diverse economy and seem to have done a better job, particularly Norway, of reinvesting the wealth that came out of the oil companies um, or the whatever the resource was. Um, I think you're right. I think the other key point of that is (laughs) oil and uh, look, we saw this obviously most prominently with Vico. They captured the Alaskan political system for a long yeah, time, right. and <laughs> you could argue about whether or not they still do. Um, they have a lot of influence, and when you're setting up a tax structure, for example, there have been times in Alaskans Alaska's political history where they're basically represented at both sides of the table, right? I mean, they mm-hmm. they they have enough influence that we like we are supposed to do arms length negotiate arms length negotiations with these oil companies at times. You're right, there are friends and neighbors, but it's also a business transaction and their headquarters is in BB's headquarters is in uh, England, like you said. And and so but but we are a small state with small population and a oil company can drop ten or twenty million dollars here and fundamentally change the political structure of our state. And they have at times. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it it's gonna be interesting to see what happens when that is hopefully no longer the case. In the, in the same vein, uh, the oil in Alaska segment, um, I do think that this will kind of get you guys to disagree a little bit, is the, <laughs> the climate change uh, and oil's effect on the climate, potentially. Alaska is the only Arctic state uh, in the nation, as we all know, and we see the effects of climate change uh, faster than anyone else in the union. How do uh, Alaskans reconcile our dependence on oil and uh, our responsibility to the environment. Let's start with Professor Nunes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, uh, I honestly, I don't, I'm not a scientist. I don't know what to think um, about, you know, the whole science climate change. I read the East Anglia scandal. I read the emails that somebody uh, posted and showed that there was really, you know, academic malfeasance going on there and that they were cooking the books to try it. And you could see how the incentives were aligned to really falsify the conclusions. Um, And uh, so that really bothered me. And I haven't gotten over that one. You know, I was generally open and, and, you know, to... uh, the possibility that uh, human influence is causing um, uh, global warming and climate change and all that stuff. But after that, I decided, I don't think I really want to accept everything that I hear from them, hook, line, and sinker. Now, the fact that people are saying that, uh, for, that it is affecting Alaska in tangible ways and that perversely it actually might even help us because we could have deep water ports built on the North Slope, which would 
really help us. If we could ship natural gas from a deep water port on the North Slope, that means we could keep it in the ground when the price is low and ship it out, you know, uh, when the price is high and maximize our return on investing in, in natural gas extraction up there. So maybe it will help us and uh, open up uh, those ports for us and also help in intercontinental trade. You know, trade. Um, I, I will say that, uh, you know, I'm involved with, all right, this isn't public, but it will be soon. <laughs> I'm sort of involved in the uh, Niskanen Center. I'm writing for them. They're trying to kind of save the Republican Party from itself. Um, and they are a very um, uh, pro-climate change policy institute in Washington, D.C. And, um, and, and so, you know, the, those good people over there are engaged in dialogue. They, they have a different approach. It's more free market. Um, and I suppose I'd be open to that. I, and I'm open to, uh, you know, the 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 uh, possibility that humans are having a significant effect on climate change. I just after that, I, I've seen a, a, that you know that fraud and a few others. I'm not been ready to just take anybody's word for it. So there you there you have it. So FD, <laughs> uh, take your best shot. Sure, climate change is real and it's being caused by humans, uh, and it's not particularly advanced science. There, there was a, a climatologist I heard speak a couple nights ago who said this is basically middle school science. And the, <laughs> the vast majority of scientists all over the world have accepted this at this point. Um, his name is uh, Brian, uh, I think it's Brett Schneider. I can't pronounce his last name, but his Twitter is at climate49 or climatologist49. I really recognize, uh, recommend people will follow him. He's a climatologist here in, in Alaska. And it is the case that here in Alaska, we can see the effects of climate change much more directly than a lot of other places, right? We have the wildfires this summer. We have um, salmon dying in, in our rivers that they think might be related to it. We have melting permafrost. I mean, you have indigenous records where people are saying, we can tell that things are noticeably warmer now than they were not too long ago. And Professor Neighbors is right that in the short term, it might be the case, or medium term, it might be the case that there are some economic benefits to Alaska. But, I mean, you can't eat money, right? And at the end of the day, if we destroy and we contribute to the destruction of the entire world's climate mm -hmm. and all the disruption that comes from that and the trillions of dollars that will come from that, um, that is something that I don't think we can live with. And so it gets back to your earlier question. How do we, as Alaskans, when we know we are contributing to this problem, how do we stop contributing? And part of it is at the local level, you can do things like the Climate Action Plan, but ultimately the biggest impact that Alaska could have would be to send two senators to the U.S. Senate that are not climate change deniers. We send one. We have another one where I think the jury is still out. To do that, we have to diversify our economy. Oil Man cannot. Names, the oil, oil is, I'll put it this way. Whenever there's an issue uh, where they need to have somebody be moderate, there's only one senator anybody calls. Okay. And so the, uh, the, what was I saying? We need to diversify the economy so that we are not so dependent on oil. The other thing is, you know, alternative energy is rapidly developing, right? We are sitting on an asset that might rapidly decrease in value very soon. We don't know when, but there is a chance that the world that has almost every major political party in the entire world has accepted the human causal relationship to climate change. The Republican Party in the United States is the only major party that seems to deny it, at least in the democratic world. Right. Uh, and they uh, uh, 
when the rest of the world says, no, we are for real moving away from fossil fuels, that could significantly impact our, our asset. So we need to be trying to diversify, not only because it's the right thing to do, not only because of the perverse effects that Professor Neighbors talked about having oil be our only major economic force, but also because it will free us politically to start having some of the hard conversations, whether they're market-based or regulatory-based, about reducing overall carbon uh, emissions in the country. And that, by its nature, is going to reduce the amount of oil that people are going to want, and that's going to harm our bottom line if we do not diversify our economy. So in the short term... Um, should Alaskan policymakers aim to incentivize uh, oil companies to come up here, or or what? Yeah, I I would say yes with natural gas. With oil, it's a little bit harder. I mean, we our economy right now is so dependent on oil that there's no question in the short and even to medium term that we have to have oil companies be a major part of our economy. So, no so question. Let's, let's take that point. And it's kind yeah. of kind of the really the root of my question. How do you reconcile those two? How can you Yeah. You said short and medium term. Yep. We should create policy that incentivizes at right. least natural natural gas. Yep. Still uh, fossil fuel. Right. Um, can it be reconciled? Is it, is it is I think it's something that has to be you just have to bite the bullet and, and preach that we yeah. uh, for climate change initiatives while um, making uh, investments in fossil fuels? or I think at the local and state level, we can do things to reduce our own carbon output, and we are doing things like converting to LED. Um, at the national level, there hasn't been a uh, there hasn't been a statewide candidate yet that's been able to run on a on a on a platform of no, we are for real going to take action on climate change and win. And that means local and state politicians have to work to diversify the economy so we can eventually get there. Because right now it is actually the case that is if you in, in you know the Green New Deal, if you did something like that, it would devastate our economy. So we have to build an economy that wouldn't be devastated by that. Or we have to find, you know, put the the New Deal in the Green New Deal and make sure that Alaska is extremely well compensated so that we can get through the transition period. From the federal government, I I assume, during that transition, how do you feel about a federal subsidy of uh, Alaska to curb climate change, if that's a fair uh, Mm -hmm. way to put what you just said? Uh, I like economic incentives. incentives. I like um, using honey, not vinegar. It's a more effective way of getting stuff done. Then you don't have bitter uh, political campaigns over whose pound of flesh is going to have to pay for this policy. Um, And, um, you know, that's why I like the Niskan and Center's approach, and you might too. Um, And, uh, uh, see, I'm I'm nudging you towards the Republican side of things. Aren't they more like libertarian Niskan and Center? Yeah, they are. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't think I don't think the Republican Party is libertarian anymore, but that would be a different conversation. Well, that's all well, I know, but that that's what they're trying to (laughs) right. Yeah, these they're trying to sort of reform the Republican Party from within. Sure. But they do take climate. I mean, they left Cato because of their differences of opinion with them Hmm. on such things like climate, because they said, "Hey, climate change is real. Sure. Uh, We got to, you know, and we got to do something about and true to libertarian principles. We need to come up with solutions." That use incentives, market-based incentives, and that kind of thing. So that's what they really want to work on. And I would, I would be, and you know, I, I'm, uh, I would be in favor of that, not simply because, um, you know, of the, um, of of, you know, it, it it, well, because it's it's more effective. I mean, if you appeal to people's self-interest, if you can find ways to appeal to people's self-interest. But how do you do that? You have a better. Case. 
mean, you, well, you have to. There's an external cost associated with with consum- with carbon yeah. output. So how do you build that price into the any kind of market? Right. Well, I think you know the the uh, carbon tax you know system that they had proposed was one. I mean, in in uh, in a sense, I mean that idea was it was a really nice idea. Sure. Uh, and it never got implemented, but I mean, it was a creative way of using incentive, financial incentives sure. to get people to, uh, you know, to to uh, mine their carbon emissions, and that is a way of kind of using market forces in your favor. And I think that's much better. You're saying market forces, but it would have to be the government that restructured the market in order to uh, do that. I hear what you're saying. Yeah. I know. Or at uh, least provide the subsidy. So please, it. entrepreneurs, we need entrepreneurs to start inventing stuff sure. that takes oil out of the game. Uh, but, but, then, but, but what you just said, I mean, if you take oil out of the game, where does that leave Alaska? Well, how, how about carbon capture? I have an idea. How about you triple the funding to the University of Alaska at Anchorage? <laughs> I agree. We will research it, discover <laughs> that. Sure. And then we'll make oil go away, and we'll become fabulously wealthy, and everybody will be happy. When I was when I was when I was in grad school, they did a congressional simulation where I, I played the congressperson from Alaska, which is uh-huh. kind of funny. And the bill that I got through, and this was ten years ago, would have opened Anwar and then taken all of the revenue and put it into an Arctic Energy Research Center at the University of Alaska, like billions of dollars. Oh, geez. And, uh, right. And, uh, Please. <laughs> and uh, I, got, I got it passed because it was just a sell. It was just a. Well, actually, I mean, let's, let's, do you mind if we segue into this for a second? Because yeah. actually, I'm serious. I, it, we're, we're about to start producing oil again. I mean, the spigot's going to come back on, we think, right? I mean. Well, what, what do you mean? It's already on. Well, I know, but I mean, the, the number of barrels of oil per day is going to start rising. I mean, again, may, maybe Sean Parnell told us we'd have a million dollars, million, three years. million well, barrels. Well, we've had a per bunch day. of permitting and ex- exploration, yeah, yeah. and they're going to hopefully go into production in a couple of years or three years. If that happens, I would like a pledge from you, Mr. Politician, mm. <laughs> that uh, you 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 will do everything you can to this time yeah. to have a share of the oil revenue go into university endowment, like University of Texas. Like University of Texas, sure. absolutely. I would absolutely. That has been killing us. Yeah. You know, our endowment is two hundred billion dollars for this university. You know what the University of Texas says? Twenty six billion. Yeah. And you know the our permanent fund, not all of it went into that. We didn't really set money aside for the university. If we had done that, yeah, our university wouldn't be going through this crisis right now. I, I would. I would absolutely agree with to that. But we need people on the conservative side of the aisle to agree to a restructuring of production taxes. Because even though we are getting more barrels, we are getting far less revenue per barrel than we got, you know, under ACES or even before that. Mm-hmm. So, and, and we're going to get even more, less because these new fields are taxed in a different way where at some point we're actually paying them to, to I mean, we still get our royalty share. But we, we, are, we are not getting enough revenue from these, this oil. So you need to – I would absolutely commit to that. You need to commit – <laughs> to allowing us to restructure our oil tax st- uh, system Deal. so that Alaskans get a I'll fair share. The- yeah. <laughs> Even though neither, neither of us has any real direct influence on this, at least not right now. No, not right now. Maybe, yeah. maybe Someday. In maybe in the future. I'm glad you brought the PFD, though, because I was actually going to segue into our uh, next segment, which is uh, the topic of universal basic income. It's mm-hmm. uh, been raised on the uh, presidential uh, campaign, especially with the rise of Andrew Yang. Uh, I want to get your guys' thoughts on that. Um, has the PFD been a curse 
but PM, yes, PMD, Parental Funds Dividend, for those that don't know, um, has it been a curse uh, for the state as far as politics goes? Because it's kind of holding, it, holding up our legislature right now. Um, and would it be wise to implement it on the national level? Yeah, well, uh, PFD has been very effective in rounding up political support from the people to keep on pulling oil out of the ground. I mean, essentially, uh, the PFD has bought votes from the people of Alaska to uh, continue with oil exploration and production and to continue to uh, depend on oil. So in a way, it's kind of, I mean... I'm, in, I'm not in political office right now, so I can afford to use inflammatory language. In a way, it's kind of like this massive bribe. Um, you keep voting to support you know, this line of policy, and we'll keep paying these PFDs. So I think I, I'm, not be, I'm neither judging that it's good or bad in this way, but I'm saying it's, it was politically effective in that sense. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, in terms of what it does for the people of Alaska, I'm not so sure that it really has helped us that much because my guess is uh, it's probably driven costs up, prices up. So that money, uh, even though it's gone right into people's pockets, I suspect that it is also across the board if, uh, inflated prices. Um, and, uh, and so I think that the net value, the real value of uh, PFD dividend has probably been less than, than what it might otherwise be. I disagree with that um, sure. for a couple of reasons. Um, there was an ICER study done not too long ago, which I'm sure Professor Neighbors is familiar with, that indicated that the PFD was an extremely effective policy at reducing sort of the most abject poverty. Um, and here in Anchorage, uh, I remember a couple of years ago, I was at this homelessness community meeting and I was talking with uh, some of our policy experts there and they said um, that October and November are usually the time when the number of people experiencing yeah. homelessness on our street is the, is the least because they get the PFD and mm -hmm. they use it to stay in an apartment or at someone's house as long as they can, right? So I think it's been a very effective uh, a very effective policy and a net positive for the state. Um, I think UBI could be an effective policy nationwide. I think it's funny when people, um, so Mr. Neighbors' position is very much diametrically opposed to our current governor and some of his supporters in the Valley who are conservatives or conservatives, but also huge supporters of the PFD. Yeah. And when you tell them the PFD is a form of UBI, they hit the roof. They say, no, it can't be because they know that UBI is socialism and they hate socialism. They love the PFD. Ergo, they cannot be the same thing. UBI is not. I, I, it's, so, not it's not socialism. Well, so the... the um, they, they think so. No, I think it, I think it is. I think that we have maybe a disagreement of what socialism well, Charles, is. Charles Murray is a libertarian. He's been in favor of UBI for years. Doesn't mean it's not socialism. I mean, so the it's, well, you're socializing some of the wealth and then redistributing, redistributing among the people. But Regardless, I mean, the, the knock on the, on the PFD is not that it's not universal or income. It's that it's not basic. It's not enough to really meet right. the, the needs of a UBI. Um, but where I think I agree with Professor Neighbors is that it has had a distortionate effect on the Alaskan political system because there, is a, there was a very clear path um, that 
Governor Dunleavy took, which was you could espouse conservatism and then use populism, essentially, and say, I'm going to increase the size of your PFD and thereby build this coalition, um, especially if you aren't challenged on whether or not your budget numbers actually you know, meet up. And during the 2018 election, for whatever reason, he was not seriously challenged on the fact that his budget ba- numbers were impossible. They were mathematically impossible, and everybody knew it. Everybody who followed the p- politics closely knew it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he was able to win uh, election, but now we see this incredible you know, uh, uh, chaos at the state level because he promised things that are fundamentally impossible, right? And so in that sense, it's not so much the PFD program's the problem. It's that I say two things. One is that we dropped the income tax when we dropped the PFD. And that was something that Governor Hammond was opposed to. And I think that has caused a lot of problems. And then second, it's the sort of... Uh, venal nature of politicians. I think politicians have abused this program, even though the program itself, I think, could have worked in a better way and does work in a good way. Well, I think it's a little inevitable that it will be used politically. You're giving, you're giving people directly money. Yeah, so, I mean, I would say it's very similar to tax cuts at the federal level, where the Republican Party has sure. promised massive tax cuts over and over and over, sure. then pre- pretended like they paid for themselves and thereby been able to, as you said, buy votes, right? And, and I think there is that similarity, and that's unfortunate, but it doesn't mean that the idea of the PFD is itself, uh, you know, fundamentally flawed to me. Sure, and my question mm-hmm. is, as far as UBI is concerned, yeah. is if you, UBI was instated, yeah. Wouldn't it create that constituent class that the PFD created to where politicians would start using UBI and increasing the UBI as a way of buying votes? Or of There was a really good article published, I think it was in Vox, by a young woman named Robin Sundley last week exploring this issue, sure. which was she's a supporter of UBI as, as am I. Um, and I know some folks that are, so were supported at the national level. And what we've learned in the last year or two in Alaska is that there is clearly this avenue for populist politicians to use this program and or just this distortionate nature. And that the, the people who, you know, UBI is, it's not a new concept, but, but Alaska is kind of the only real example of it in the United States. And so I think there's a lot of lessons being learned right now about what's happening in Alaska. And people that want to craft a UBI policy nationally have to take what's happening to Alaska into account and have to try some to learn the lessons. here to study what we've been doing and a some lot of the problems that uh, uh, Chris Hughes, who is mm-hmm. one of the co-founders of Facebook, was here. And, um, you know, he is, uh, this is where politics sometimes makes strange bedfellows. Yep. And he's on the progressive left. Charles Murray is known as a libertarian. They're both UBI fans. And um, and I think, uh, uh, you know, if, if we could replace uh, a lot of um, programs with UBI, what that does is it restores choice to, to citizens. And so I like that. And I like the fact that, you know, by providing people with a basic livable income, that uh, they don't have to fill out all these forms and all of the help that they might need is conditional and, so, and all of that. So, you know, this is also this idea once uh, entered the uh, a political you know, uh, debate as, uh, you know, negative income tax mm-hmm. um, nationally. And I actually, you know, I mean, I would like to experiment a little bit with this and see if this works better. I hate the idea of... Um, and this is where you really see my libertarianism shine. Uh, you know, I, I hate the idea that people always have are beholden to 
bureaucrats and red tape and all of that to try to make ends meet and to try to and that gives these you know bureaucrats power of their lives and and dumb forms and errors in the system which happens all the time so anyway i mean i i, I that's why i would love to experiment with that idea. but would you so if ubi was implemented would you cut other social programs in lieu of that or would you keep the same social programs that are already in place yeah well i would like to just in the spirit of the quid pro quo that uh, mr dunbar made uh, just a few <laughs> months i'm going to return the favor and say hey you shut down a few programs let's go ubi let's replace it with you and and let's replace those programs in equal amounts of funding yeah. you follow my drift so, i mean i i would, well, if I we would had, like to see that if we had universal health care um, a lot of these programs would get a lot less expensive and a lot less complicated. So that would be one way to help you get there. Have Medicare for all or something equivalent to that. And there, you don't have to fill out a bunch of forms and prove that you're at this income level or prove this or that. It's just like places like Japan, Germany, Australia, where I'm a citizen, so I, I can have universal health care. Then we can lower overall costs and we can use those savings to have a UBI. How about that? Is this show going to be an hour? Because I think it's now like, we have something to really fight about. It's probably going to be an hour. I have one more question, but I do want to stay on top of the UBI and and balancing out the equation as far as because yeah. uh, I, I think it could be looked at as a libertarian topic and it could be looked at as a socialist topic depending on what other social programs the country has if it's on the national level. Sure. I think what Alaska has right now is links more towards the the socialist side because we have a, a very yeah. bloated. Uh, state government um, false <laughs> no it's false I mean compared to almost any compared to almost every other developed country in the world we actually have very little social services so you know the state of Alaska particularly the United States as a whole and the state of Alaska as a political entity in that where we don't have particularly – look, I worked at Alaska Legal Services. It is not easy to be on food stamps or to be on Medicaid. You're absolutely right. You have to deal with these bureaucrats that have control over your life. And you have to – and with things like food stamps, you're time barred. I mean you have three months and then you're – some people are kicked off. So we actually do not have a super generous welfare state in this state or in the United States. But the libertarians have convinced a lot of people – you know. By shifting the Overton window, that actually there's this huge entitlement class. That's actually not the case. It's very hard to sort of live on uh, uh, the equivalent of welfare in this state or anywhere else. So I, I mean, I guess I and, and the, the idea we have a bloated state government. You know, adjusted for inflation, we spend less per capita now than we have at any point since the 1980s. So I, I don't think that's the case either. Of course, it is expensive to live in Alaska and to have basic services in Alaska. There's no question. But the thing that the United, sets the United States and Alaska apart from the rest of the developed world is we have extremely low taxes. We have very low taxes relative to the rest of the world. Well, I would first do my cross comparison <laughs> between Alaska and other states yeah. instead of Alaska and Sweden. Yeah. Right? Uh, I think that's a, 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 a more fair comparison to make. Um, I do think we spend too much too much money here, and our our government is our state government is too big. Um, but what what specifically spend, would you cut? Well, I uh, don't quote me on the number. Don't ask me to quote the numbers, but you know I've seen the numbers and the the amount of government spending per per citizen per resident in the state. I think compare is very high compared to other states not to sweden but to other states um and I, you know the reason for that is that when the state of alaska was admitted to the union 
We had this massive amount of land, small population. We set up the state to, uh, to basically for, to fund and administer government from the center to all over. They did put Article 10 into the state constitution, which is there to try to raise maturing uh, communities through pupillage to maturity and then become self-governing independent communities. But, you know, we still uh, are really sustaining communities all across Alaska, including this university, from a central point out into the edges. And that we haven't really yet broken out of that. And I think oil factors very large in that story, why it is. We did it because we could. And, st- and, and uh, I, you know, uh, I think a, a much better and, and well, happier uh, state uh, would, uh, would see communities that mature and develop and have diversified economies and can support themselves and, and so on, instead of having, you know, all the parts of the state basically lifted up from government services and funding and breaks and PFD dividends and everything coming from a central point. I mean, our university says that I'm part of the system. We have one of the highest rates of dependency on state appropriations in the country. Mm-hmm. Right. And it shouldn't be that way. But why is it? Well, because of the way the system was set up, you know, and and all of government, all of state government is kind of like that. I think that's why it's so expensive. On a, on a per person basis, as opposed to, you know, other states where communities are more self-supporting and they're more frugal as a result. But we uh, uh, and we I think we that's what I would like us to get to. I think overall we would be far more prosperous. Our economy would be far more diversified if we um, if if we sort of uh, if we no longer expect the state to kind of do that job of lifting everybody up. But the state has always been the entity, and I think is the only realistic entity in which to do that sort of in-gathering and redistribution. And you say like a centralized point. I think people hear that and they think it's Anchorage or Juneau. But actually the wealth of the state is created mostly in rural Alaska. It comes from the North Slope. It comes from the Red Dog Mine. It comes from the fish that are uh, along the coast. So, I mean, another model is the wealth stays there and doesn't come to Anchorage or doesn't go to Juneau. You know, that the the folks at the North Slope fully control the oil and are able to Mm -hmm. buy and sell it and have property taxes and all the rest. But I don't think that was really an equitable model either because it's arbitrary whether you happen to be sitting on a plot of land that has a huge amount of oil or whether you don't. And so we create a state constitution and we use things like ANCSA with the 7i funds that do help sort of bring in and redistribute that wealth. And I I think it's sort of uh, Mm -hmm. an inescapable model when you have a state with this kind of population, with these kind of resources, and, uh, and with this kind of geographic challenge, right? But to get to your point about, uh, you know, what could we do to maybe reduce, maybe this was your point, some dependence on the oil and some dependence on the extraction. Part of it is we are the only state in the country without any kind of broad-based tax, mm-hmm. right? We're the only state where that's the case. Yeah. Forget comparing us to Sweden. Compare us to Texas. If we had, if we had an oil system or, or – and they have either a sales tax or an income tax. I, you know more about Texas than I do. They have a sales tax, right? Yeah. I prefer an income tax because I think sales taxes are a little bit more no, aggressive. I, I, I'm, I'm with you. I, I agree. Either way, you have to be able to capture more of the wealth and then, and, and also have a, have skin in the game, right? Alaskans the have to have more skin in the game. Skin argument the game. is a compelling one. I think yeah. that's the most compelling one. Yeah, and that was and this was this was 
you know, Governor Hammond, uh, the last Republican my parents ever voted for, <laughs> um, uh, was a visionary in a lot of ways. He yeah. opposed getting rid of the income tax, and eventually he went along with it. Um, but I think his insight was we'd have the PFD that would basically hold Alaskans harmless, and then the folks that came in to work on the North Slope to come wherever, they would pay an income tax, and we would pay some small income tax as well. And in that way, you wouldn't have this fundamental break that you've seen with a lot of people between the government and the services provided, and like you were mm-hmm. saying, you know, the, the sort of the fact that I am myself contributing to it, mm-hmm. right? That I have some financial incentives to, yeah. maybe it's to reduce costs. I actually don't think it would be. When, when, you, when you put it in front of people, like say where I'm from in Cordova, would you rather have an income tax or a ferry system? I think most people would say, I'd be willing to pay an income tax that meant I had a ferry system. Yeah. Because without the ferry system, my small rural community cannot function. And that's the case with a lot of places in Alaska where there's, there are these programs. The school, where, when I, where I lived in, in Eagle, the school is the center of the community. And that's the case for a lot of villages. If you destroy state support for the schools, some of these villages will actually wither and die and go away. And I know that some folks that live on the road system say, well, so be it. They shouldn't live out there. Um, but I think yeah. that gets to something that's fundamental about the soul of the state of Alaska. And rural communities are very much a part of that. I understand. So let me, I don't want to debate with you about you know, whether or not we should cut those schools in those communities. Um, what I'd like to debate is how do we get to a, a vision that I think we could both get behind? What I would like to see the state, you know, Lord willing and the river don't rise. I, I'm still here. We're both here for years to come and hopefully we can have some influence in this debate. And, and, and But what I would like to see Alaska become is the richest, freest and and also because we missed a lot of the harshest lessons of the industrial revolution we can still be the greenest state of the union i mean we ought here we ought to be able to teach the rest of the world how to live in the arctic and thrive and prosper while living while and doing so without harming our environment but living together with it and and have a population here that is numerous yeah but is not overwhelming the because we we can fit them here but we're also preserving the beauty of this place and not damaging it well, we I- could have i mean we could have 50 million people here and not even put a dent in <laughs> in this and but yeah. seriously, no, that I, is how I'd like to. We are right in the middle of international trade routes, right in the middle of fiber lines that meet offshores that connect the Americas, Asia, and Europe. I mean, there is a ton that we ought to be able to do with this place economically. That's what I would like to get to, and I would like to get to a point where these our communities are vibrant, thriving economically, and the debate is not going to be about whether or not. The state should lift up these rural school systems because they're the soul of the state and whether or not we should cut them or make this expense, but rather rather have communities that are able to support them on their own because they're wealthy, happy, prosperous, and self-governing. That's where I think we... And so the question ought to be... I I don't like the, the debate about, oh, should we, you know, cut all these people off of the state government? It's totally... You know, and and uh, this person's a demon and a devil because they want to cut them off. And then this person is profligate and spending wants to waste the public treasury. No, 
let's start with the vision and then figure out how do we get there? Because I think a lot of people like that vision of our state exporting republicanism and trade and wealth back to the lower 40 sure. and show how citizens, we are so hyper diverse here in Anchorage and we could show the rest of, our, of the country how we can be prosperous, thriving, American, patriotic American citizens. That, yeah. it, we, Look, we I, want that, don't I, we? I don't disagree with a lot of what you said in theory. In practice, the way it's worked in Alaska, um, well, I'll, I'll say one thing. It doesn't really matter whether or not you want to support those rural schools. There's a constitutional duty to do so, right? And it's been litigated. You have to constitutionally fund those rural schools, right? I would say also, I just want to make sure we bring it up before we close here. Um, when you're talking about the greenest state, and you're talking about the state where we have self-governing bodies, um, we know it can be done because it was done by the indigenous people here for 10,000 exactly. years. Right. So. Uh, I think the indigenous community has to be a key part of that vision. The problem is yeah, right it is. now, it is, it is, but I there mean, the are... Native corpor the native corporations... Well, the native only. corporations are part of it, but there's also the tribal entities and a lot of folks mm -hmm. who feel that some of the extractive industries are counter to what they see as the long-term vision of the state, right? And so that gets back to diversifying away from some of those extractive right. industries too. Um, but again, I mean, the idea that we should be prosperous, the idea that we should be largely self-governing, the idea that people shouldn't be completely reliant on the state. I don't think you're going to get much pushback on any of that. But the practical reality on the ground right now in a lot of rural communities is that the state has been the primary funder of the schools, for example. They have a constitutional duty to do so. And that needs to continue if we want to have a functioning state. Because ultimately, what you're talking about is a lot of really acute political tension if you try to do what the governor just tried to do, which was very quickly devastate all of those communities. Whether or not that was his intention, I don't think it was. Some people think he's like actually trying to actively depopulate the state. Um, I don't think that's necessarily the case. Um, I just think that his particular vision is driven by something fundamentally counter to the way, that, the, way the state was originally structured and the way the constitutional law of the state exists. Um, right. And, it, you know, in the future, again, like I... The force that policy debate shouldn't be uh, the be-all and end-all of the legislative session. I mean, we should be thinking about that long-term vision and, and yeah. thinking about what policy steps we need to take to get there. Yeah. So that we're not just debating about... That's why I'm saying. I want to get away from... I want to solve that policy difference of, of agree, you know. Yeah. Get that taken care of. And then let's move to how to improve our state. Because, frankly, yeah. our growth has been pathetic. We have fallen so short of where we should be as a state. Uh, and, and we don't look ourselves in the mirror enough and say that we well, have fallen short I and we, we need to improve. Because we are not using all the assets that we have here I didn't agree to with, with that. I didn't agree with everything Governor Bill Walker did or the way he did it. And I think he made some pretty key mistakes politically. But I think he was willing to have that conversation you're talking about now. And he was trying to. And I'm yeah. hoping that Governor Kevin Meyer will be too. Um, I thought I thought after Walker, a year, <laughs> you know, regardless regardless of what you you know like or don't yeah. like about his policy solutions, the man had guts. Yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> he and, actually and, tried to right, and 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 I like I said, I didn't share every all those same political beliefs that he did, but yeah. I mean, his his obsession in life was to try to build a, a natural gas pipeline, yeah. and you might you could agree whether or not that was the right 
policy, right. but I think it fits into what you're talking about. That was what he right. wanted to accomplish. He wanted yeah, to yeah. do something that would have lasted longer than just the taps, right? Yeah, and yeah. he was willing to um, make some really tough political calls to try to get us somewhere near a balanced budget. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, there was obviously you know, what happened there. Yeah. Well, well, we found something to uh, argue about. Yeah. Although I'm still not sure how far apart we are. Yeah, I definitely think we found something. <laughs> UBI, well, it just points to the importance of uh, direct subsidies to uh, the populace and how that can affect uh, politics. And I think that we have to look at that if we start to talk about uh, implementing a UBI on a national level, how that will affect our politics. And it's not going to stay at a current rate. It's probably going to move, uh, increase faster than the rate of inflation, knowing politics, and people wanting to get elected. Maybe. I mean, um, Social Security didn't, though. I mean, Social Security right so, now Social is... Social Security is also insolvent, so I don't think we should compare it to... Social Security is not insolvent. What's insolvent is the fact that we we, we, we rated it and we, again, passed these huge tax cuts. Uh, uh, yeah. Anyway, yeah. Medicare and Medicaid we're, we're has much. The end of the, end Medicare of the and Medicaid has much more problems than Social Security, and that's because of dramatic uh, healthcare inflation. Sure. You are like Bill Clinton that you never turn it off. You you just you <laughs> love the, he's a, he's a policy wonk. I am, and of course, Roy, I am. Bill Clinton was a policy wonk. Well, I I, I don't again. I, I don't and know. And I'll point if that's this out to our viewing audience that you know he also studied in in Washington D.C. undergrad, then went to Yale Law. Yeah. You know, yeah. So. yeah. This is all true. Um, I, I uh, <laughs> but you, you know I I actually do turn it off um, when I'm playing basketball with Mike and other uh, people. That's yeah, yeah. that's just, that's my happy it's place. Into you're a, you're a Sacramento <laughs> Kings fan, aren't you? No, Golden State Warriors. Golden State. Oh, sorry. No, I, I got nothing against the Kings. <laughs> I was just uh, my my extended family is yeah, originally right. from the Bay Area, so yeah, I've okay. been a Warriors fan back before they were good. Yeah. Back in the We Believe days yeah, and before yeah. that, too. But, yeah. Well, I'll leave, I'll leave you with something. You know okay. that God wears pinstripes. Mm, that is yeah. a fact. It's in the Bible. I'm more of, a, I'm more of an A's fan myself. But oh. <laughs> to be Best honest, I don't. minor league team. And, and uh, yeah, uh, you nice. know, they keep sending us players. Yeah. It's fantastic. Best team money can buy. <laughs> oh. Uh. But that's the Red Sox. Yeah, fair but enough. But they accept they're not the best. <laughs> well, well, this, this has been good. This has been good. It's been a good um, podcast. And just wrapping things up, um, I want to ask the final question, which is that something that we'll ask all of our guests, is how can we, uh, in this political political climate, um, come together in a bipartisan manner like we did today and <laughs> have a good conversation that leads to some promises being made, some deals being made on <laughs> going forward. Um, we asked Professor Neighbors this uh, yesterday. Um, yeah, so you go first. Start with okay. Today. I feel like my answer will probably not bring us closer together, but that's okay. Um, <laughs> I think that at the local level, we've actually done a pretty good job of having this kind of bipartisanship. Um, uh, I mean, at the local level here in Anchorage, uh, I think we've accomplished a lot, and I don't really care if a proposal comes from Crystal Kennedy, who's a conservative, or Austin Quinn Davidson, who's a progressive. Um, I think we've done a lot of work, and there's no letter next to your name. At the state level, actually, we have a remarkable amount of bipartisan. We have a bipartisan coalition right now. The divide at the state level is actually not between Democrat and Republican. It's it's basically between the people that went to Juneau and whatever you call the people that Wasilla. went to Wasilla, right, when we had the, the two different competing sessions. And there were Republicans, well, there were only Republicans in Wasilla, but there are Republicans and Democrats in uh, in Juneau. Um, I think the way to reduce partisanship 
a couple things. I think you have to reduce, and this like, this is where Professor Neighbors, I think, will will disagree. You have to reduce some of the counter-majoritarian structures of our country. So at the national level, we have this rampant uh, partisanship. And I think in particular, you have to reduce the, the amount of money in politics, and you have to reduce income inequality. All of those things are related. So if you survey American people right now, they think income equality, if you measure the Gini coefficient, is right about here. And they think, and you ask them, what should it be? And they, they say it should be right about here. But the actual reality in the world is that it's here. It's the highest it's been since the 1920s. And it creates a ton of, uh, of problems and, and pathologies in our political discourse. And when you have, again, I don't want to be too partisan, but if you have a party that's committed to that sort of vision of the country that's so out of step with the vast majority of people, you're going to have to, you're going to lead to a politics of dishonesty and a politics of that that sort of is the the naked uh, 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 the the naked use of power, exercise of power, and you're going to destroy a lot of norms. Okay, to do that, if you believe that you are right and your policy preferences are so out of whack with what the majority of people want, you're going to start doing things like, for example, using the filibuster all the time. And the clearest example, I think, of, of where this partisanship has taken us is uh, the case of Merrick Garland, right? And Mitch McConnell basically saying, I won't even give your Supreme Court justice, your potential Supreme Court justice, a hearing, right? And in so doing, capturing this seat for the Republican Party, this this um, this seat, and flipping the Supreme Court. So before I came here today, I was reading up on, there is now a, a, a sort of mainstream political discourse in the Democratic Party about we need to, quote unquote, unpack the court. The court has been packed by the Republican Party, and we need to unpack it. So if a, Repu- if a Democrat wins the presidency, and we take the Senate, I think you will see serious calls to increase the size of the Supreme Court to unpack the packing that's been done the last several cycles by predominantly by Mitch McConnell, right? So that that to me, getting rid of some of those counter-majoritarian forces, bringing the Republican Party more in line with the policy preferences of the rest of the country, I think that will lead to a lot more bipartisanship. But right now, you have a national Republican Party, and again, this is where Professor Namers and I probably disagree. You have a national Republican Party that is careened so far out of the mainstream that None of their policy preferences are actually held by almost any of the Repub- of the majority of the people in the country. And when that's the case, bipartisanship, when you were saying Democrats need to move closer to the Republicans, I think that is very hard to achieve and not necessarily what should happen. Um, so I, I, I think, again, you need to reduce the impact of money in politics. You need to bring the Republican Party closer to the, where the mainstream of, of the American people are. And you need to reduce income inequality. In so doing, you will help heal the divide of partisanship at the national level. At the state level and the local level, it's a little bit less bad. Mm-hmm. Wow, that was a lot there. Yeah. <laughs> no more time for me. We can do another podcast on that wrap up, but last words, uh, Professor Neighbors, it's, it's all yours. He's wrong about everything. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. No, um, I appreciate those remarks. I mean, uh, I would just say very briefly that um, I think both parties are in serious trouble, both of them. And the problem on, I mean, what what I what I just heard sounds like what I also hear from those who incline left, which is that uh, the way to solve, uh, uh, you know, the problem in our civil discourse is for people on the right to basically give up and join us, 
or to become less radical. Or to that. become come, more come, like us. Come a little bit more towards us. the center. I mean, the same right, pressure wait, that wait, was... Wait, wait, if, wait. Yeah. I'm, I'm talking now, okay. sir. See, that's the problem. <laughs> there is no political... There's no real political yep. left in this country. There's a centrist and there's a right. Uh, well, but the, the solution, the, the solution, what I just heard, as you explain it, is basically for people who are on the right to come to the left. And that's how you solve... Come closer, to, come closer to the center. Yeah, but they... Well, look, I mean, the left has been... Uh, our political spectrum in this country, if you want to look at left and, and right, has been going left for a while. <coughs> and so what essentially you're saying is, uh, you know, people who are on the right, you need to run to the left as fast as we do. Uh, and that's how you solve bipartisanship. No, it, what we mean by bipartisanship, which I understand you mean by his question, is that we... Uh, that we continue to be in principle disagreement, we're able to figure out where we have common ground and we're able to talk to each other and maybe uh, try to sway each other some. The problem is that the lack of that in our in the political spaces and the lack of civility. <laughs> what I would say, yeah, he's etching you already. <laughs> but there is a big problem in your party at, that uh, that I see nationally, not in Alaska. Um, but nationally, it is a problem uh, that, uh, and you know, we, uh, and it, it, it I, and I, but I won't exempt the Republican Party from criticism. I, I mean, I've been a registered independent for the longest time, and um, um, you know that recently changed. I because I want to help clean things up. And I've been a registered. I've been a registered independent for years. Can, can I ask uh, one question before we wrap up? It's a hell of a time for me to become a Republican, right? Right. Yeah. And when 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 Trump, because so, I'm I'm a never Trumper. I didn't vote for him. I never will. But I want to help clean things up, and I and that's why I want to you know work with an Iskinen so, Center. So as the country becomes more diverse. Uh, demographically, yeah. it appears that the policy preferences of the electorate is becoming, as you would say, sort of further to the left. So my question is, the Republican Party that is ostensibly committed to both capitalism and democracy, if it becomes the case that they cannot be committed to their current vision of capitalism, um, do you think they'll give up that vision of capitalism or they'll give up the democratic impulse? Because we have things like gerrymandering, for example, the way that was used in North Carolina, the way that it was used in Wisconsin. We have things like the filibuster. We have things like the electoral college that will again and again frustrate the democratic majority. And I say the little d democratic majority. Um, do you think the Republicans will double down on those kind of counter-majoritarian strictures or do you think they will change their sort of policy preferences? Well, I think that is a great question for our next <laughs> I'm going to have to – I'll chew on that one for us. We'll we are, come back. But we are definitely uh, approaching an hour in this podcast, okay. so we got to wrap things up. But we do appreciate you guys sitting down, and I will be more than happy to sit down with you guys again to pick up that question for us. <laughs> uh, thanks, everybody. We'll see you next time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Professor. <laughs> All right, sir. Good times. I didn't yeah, want to – I didn't want to – right now about space. <laughs> oh, no, no, yeah, you're good. I think we're...